Hello, and welcome to Industry Elites. On this podcast, Industry Elite's very own Natalie and Vicky are going to be interviewing business owners and individuals who have made their mark in their respective industries. episode we have part two of our three-part series with Terrell Strayhorn. So let's get into it. I think the one thing I just wanted to highlight and maybe get your perspective on is there's this whole concept of the college experience. Students who are starting out, they've just finished their last year of high school and they've applied to several colleges and they're really excited to start in September. They, I feel like, are at a heightened level of anxiety and a heightened level of new learning because With students who have already completed their first year, they kind of already have that under their belt. So maybe this transition comes a bit easier to them in second year and third year because they understand the processes quite a bit. So what can you say to students and maybe pointing them in the direction for an easier transition of those who have just completed their grade 12 year and how can they still get that college experience entering into their first year? It's a great question. And all of these have been, but you're right. I think that, you know, I find myself almost daily recording the questions that come up that are just totally new. I mean, we had never thought about it. I got one little anecdote to share. It's a little frightening at first, but it's the real experience. So I think it was yesterday. I try to read in the morning when, you know, I'm sort of fresh and up and my brain has not been exhausted at all by the cares of the day. So I try to read or at least skim heavily a couple of news sources every day. So I personally will look at what's sort of front page, online front page of the Washington Post. I'll pay attention to any headlines that particularly relate to education or entrepreneurship. I'll glance at the New York Times. And because I'm a professor in higher ed, I also pay attention to the Chronicle of Higher Ed. And I think it was yesterday, there was a fascinating story. And it was the image that caught my attention. It was this image of this just, and maybe you saw it, sort of ferocious looking mouse. And I thought, oh my gosh, why is a rat on the front page of the Washington Post? And I looked on Twitter and it was like getting all the buzz. So I decided to read the story. And it turns out that the CDC released some guidance just recently to us as a public. And so maybe now your podcast serves as a public service announcement by way of the CDC guidelines. So go check it out. That we should all be vigilant in coming weeks and months to make sure that we are being very clean with our waste and that we're keeping trash and so forth covered because as we have shut down as a nation and stayed home and, you know, our restaurant industry has been hugely impacted. And because people aren't going to restaurants and aren't ordering food as much, there's a lot less waste at restaurants. And though we don't think about it, This is the food supply for most mice and rats in this country. And so they've been going to their normal place to get food and finding the cupboards are bare, which forces them and any animal psychologist or biologist knows that, you know, the circle of life is this way. You know, they're motivated to eat just like we are. So they start looking in new places. And so there has been documented evidence of these mice and rats, rodents, moving away from the restaurants and likely showing up in places where we live all across the country looking for food, not coming to harm us necessarily, but looking for food because they can't find it elsewhere. 
And I thought, wow, that is fascinating. Like I never, I never thought about, you know, by closing down the restaurant industry, we're cutting off the food supply to a part of the circle of life, which only means we've got to be that much more vigilant about making sure we're taking care of our own trash, both individually and collectively across communities. So that's my little segue into your question. And I think the same way that we have not even thought about that in society, there are questions that we have not thought about in education yet. One thing I know is that we've known for a long time that your point about speaking to students who are also listening, I greatly appreciate because, you know, regardless of whether we're opening up face-to-face or online, in a matter of about two to two and a half months, 4,300 colleges and universities across this country will open up and they will welcome what's estimated to be, you know, above 21 million students and maybe more, quite honestly, because I think as everybody's learning online, it just removes the veneer that once existed about online instruction. You know, is it as real as on-campus instruction? Is it as frightening as, and I think there'll be people who will go back to school because everybody's back online or they're able to do it online. And so too, as our technology and the support that we provide for online learners has increased. So I'm excited to see what that final count is, but these campuses will open back up and they'll welcome amongst that 21 million, lots of first year students. And we have known from decades of research that that first semester in college is intimidating, it is isolating, it is frightening for all students. It doesn't matter what your high school GPA, your ACT score, your race, your social class, your sexual orientation, your political affiliation. I mean, those elements or characteristics shape your experience in undeniable ways. But everybody starts college wondering, can I do this? Do I have what it takes? Will I make friends? Will I be successful? Did I make the right choice? So to those students who are listening to this podcast, I want to affirm for you that if you're thinking that, it doesn't mean that you're not college material. It doesn't mean that you're not ready. It means that you're actually just like all of us. And many people who have started college filled with doubts and filled with worry have found success in college, flourished in college. So let's just normalize that a bit. But this will be unique in that we have not had a fall semester that will welcome freshmen back to campus in the middle of a global crisis in many, many, many decades. And so we want to appreciate that and recognize that, acknowledge it. It will be different. But I think that what you will find is that your institution is working right now to prepare for you, to make sure that your health and your well-being, your mental health and your physical health are protected and that you feel safe and secure in the learning environment and that the faculty who are teaching you are well prepared to teach you and deliver a high quality educational experience in that platform or that environment and that we have worked to place online all of the supports you need to be successful. I want to affirm that. I do believe I have good faith in the enterprise of higher education and my colleagues all across the country that that's what they're working on right now, but that there will likely be some moments where you as a new freshman might reach out for support that has not yet been invented or that you might experience a challenge that we had not yet anticipated. And so 
to know that, you know, I hope that you will extend grace to your institutions and that they will do the same to you, that we can be empathetic and patient with one another in this new normal as we adjust back to college. We've known from decades of research that that first six weeks are critically important to the success of a first year student. The reason why is because usually within the first six weeks of going away to campus, that's when homesickness missing your friends, it settles in to mom, dad, auntie, uncle, whoever the caregiver might be that, oh my gosh, they're really gone and I miss them. And so students are you know, compelled to have to toe the line between school and family. And that's also a time where a lot of students have to renegotiate relationships with their family and their friends, people who they used to call every day during the summer because they didn't have anything to do. They've now got to help them understand, I've got classes to go to. I've got assignments I must work on. So I can't talk on the phone or play the game or whatever it is all day long. This will be interesting to see whether or not or how this plays out in the fall if you're learning online. What does it mean to renegotiate these relationships when you might physically still be at home? Does it mean that the student won't have to find a new rhythm for their work life or develop a fluency for talking with their family and their friends about needing reserved space for learning or reserved time to work on assignments. I think those conversations are going to be just as important, which is why on our Do Good Work website, if you go to it, it's www.dogoodworkllc.org. Under our resources banner, we have a set of tools called Higher Ed Libs. They're short phrasal tools that help students talk to their family about this, talk to their professors about when they need help. But I think those tools and skills are going to be just as important in the fall. It's just how it plays out and when it's deployed or used may certainly be different. So it's an exciting time, I think, to be in education. It's certainly an exciting time to be in higher education. My final affirmation for all the students, regardless of level, you could be K-12, undergraduate, graduate student, an adult learner returning after raising all your kids and starting your own company is this, and that is you can be successful in higher education. The institution that you're enrolled at can help you achieve your goals for yourself. But to do it, especially in the middle of this new normal, I think will require us banding together, even while we're physically apart, to make sure that no student gets left behind. And while institutions that are on the fore and the cutting edge are trying to anticipate all the pitfalls they can to prepare for them, I'm a witness. I do not think you can anticipate every single pitfall. These are new and uncertain times. We've invited an incredibly diverse student body to higher education who has different needs. We will have to develop systems for hearing the voice of our students, the voice of our staff, the voice of our faculty. And then we'll have to be nimble so that we can respond to these concerns as they come up. I've been impressed to see how institutions are starting to respond to some of the security and privacy concerns that have come up with these video conferences, whether it's to replace the technology or to require a pen for a person to get into the room. We're going to have to be just as responsive and nimble in the fall. And ultimately, it's not just about fancy technology and cutting edge or advanced leadership practices. 
It's to make sure that every single student can be successful. And I believe that it's possible. One point that you mentioned there is these kids aren't moving away from home because everything is going to be online for the fall. Kind of having that discussion with your family and their friends of give me space. I still need to do my schoolwork and just literally finding a designated space for that. Because I know if I lived at home during school, I'd still have the dining room table set up and (laughs) that would not have worked at all. I will tell you that. But it's kind of an interesting point like I never even thought that would be an issue but then I was kind of thinking too that I had a hard enough time telling my roommates that I didn't want to go out on a Tuesday night so now having to have that conversation with my parents would be a whole different ball game just trying to do your homework yeah and we've seen that both through our engagement with our clients but I mean you only need to look at social media whether that is Twitter, TikTok, whatever you want to look at, to see that if you sort of do a thematic analysis of what students are posting about, it's very clear. And we know this, although I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me be patient. You know, we know if you look at social media, there are clear themes emerging from today's high school and college students. You got college students now living back home with their parents, and this was not anticipated, wasn't how they expected to finish up their senior year or start their college career. And so, you know, it's no surprise that if you look in sociological literature, recent sociological literature, there's evidence of increased conflict, debates and arguments amongst family members because we're around each other all the time. So I think it's going to become increasingly important for life in general, but especially for those who are entering college to set boundaries for themselves. And it's okay to those who are listening in our audience to invite the family or your parents into a formal conversation about what you need in order to be successful this coming fall and to talk about maybe You know, I've seen a lot of different strategies, you know, designated quiet hours where not only can the students in the home work on homework, but maybe the adults, you know, the parents or the guardians can work on their work or paying bills. So I think sitting down and talking about what you need and framing it as a conversation about what you need in order to be successful in your educational endeavor is a promising direction. And then to, one, have ideas that you would bring to the table. You know, I think it's okay to absolutely put out there that you do need designated space because you would have it if you were in college or in school, just like many of us would have it if we were at work and back in the office. So, and I I think it's just a very good practice to set up a designated space that you can go to so that when you are physically in that space, you're sort of at work. And this doesn't have to be a whole room. It doesn't have to be a whole, you know, side of the house. It could be a desk and a chair that you sort of created your command central. But when you're there, you're on. It also helps you psychologically that when you're not there, you're not on. And so even though we might be in the same space day to day, we can create separation between school and work and life and fun in these ways. And so I think asking for designated space, I think it's okay to talk about and important to talk about designated time where you can work uninterrupted, if possible, on your assignments. I think it's also important to talk to your family and friends about accountability measures because it's hard to learn. And I'm saying this both as a professor and educator and campus leader, but also as one who took an online or has taken online courses. 
it's easy to not hold yourself accountable, especially in asynchronous online learning where you can say, you know what, I'm going to wait a week. I'll catch up next week. And then next week come, you say, you know what, I'll just next Saturday, I'll catch up on the past three weeks. Before you know it, you've missed everything. And now you're struggling to succeed. So how do you structure your time and schedule your day so that you can stay up on your assignments? You can be ready to learn during the asynchronous or synchronous, and you can't do it on your own. You need accountability partners. And quite honestly, I think this is when students need to turn to their families and talk about, it would be helpful to me if you would. I think I'm more likely to find success if I could depend on you to and talk about this. My final point about this is, this is not a one-way conversation. So it's not, here's what I need, here's the space I need, here's the time I need, and here's what I need from you. But you stay open to hearing from others what they need from you, as well as if they can't deliver exactly what you need, that you would be open to other possibilities. And like you, I think it was you, Vicki, who shared your story. I remember growing up, I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia, two wonderful parents who I sort of fell into this. I was fortunate enough to grow up around academically oriented friends. It wasn't like, I don't remember saying like, I want to do well at school. Not until much later, maybe like sixth grade or something. But early on, I did well in school because my friends did well in school. And it was like to hang out with them, you got to do well in school. So I did that to gain their acceptance or something. But then by sixth grade, I started, I remember consciously thinking about my studies and striving intentionally to do well. And it was in ninth grade as I entered into high school my mother would watch me stay up late working on assignments and she would beg me to go to sleep. And I would tell her like, I got to finish this because I was throwing myself into my assignments. I loved school. And one thing she did, she couldn't build onto our home and give me a private study area. We didn't have resources like that. But what she did, which was powerful when I look back at it, was she had a dining room that my mother took great joy setting up. It had a tablecloth and lots of fine china or whatever it was. I mean, we could barely go in there because it was so nice. But, you know, we, we ate at the kitchen table, but this was like the the museum room or whatever. When I was in high school, my mother said, you know, I think you need a place to get your work done. And I'm tired of watching you, you know, work on your floor or on your bed. And she converted, she took everything down off the dining room table and converted the dining room table into what I call my high school office. And I could set up there. I could put my assignments there. I could go to school and come back and my papers would not be touched. You know, they'd be where I left them. It's probably not too far a stretch of the imagination that because of that relatively small step my mother took, you know, I'm a professor today and on this podcast because it affirmed for me in ways that I didn't realize that my parents cared about my academic success. And though my mom finished undergrad, my dad finished high school, and my educational achievements have taken me to levels of education that my parents couldn't coach me through. They've always been my major cheerleaders, and they were able to signal their support and their love and their care by making resources available or provisions for me in that way. So I offer that not intentionally. I sort of fell into that story, but I now hear something I want to just echo for those listening in the listening audience. I mean, there will likely be parents who are thinking, what can I do? I've never taken an online course before. How can I support my student, my niece, my nephew, my son, my daughter, because I'm not in college or I never went to college. And you don't have to go to college to support someone to success in college. What we've learned from research is that the secret ingredients to that formula are actually much more simpler than that. You can create space the same way my mom did for me, the same way that 
Vicky said happened for her. You can affirm for the student when they talk to you that if they start saying, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling stretched, you can tell them that that's okay. Encourage them to balance their time, to unplug sometimes. You can make reference to the kinds of resources. I'd encourage them to check out our website. Our website points to many other websites and resources that are available to students. So I think affirming for students, affirming their experiences, supporting them, the power of encouragement goes a long way. Letting them know that you believe in them, that even though this is a global crisis, that I've told a lot of people who just graduated this past spring, they're all frustrated because they imagine having a big commencement or graduation. And while I realize that the circumstances are not ideal, we have to admit that rarely in life are circumstances ideal. So I think for the adults who are listening, you know, helping students reframe this from a moment into sort of monumental lessons about life, that what they learn from this crisis, if nothing else, is how to be resilient, how to be responsible, how to be responsive, how to stay connected with people, even though you can't be physically together. And they're learning a lot about themselves as learners. And I think those messages really get into the sort of DNA of success for, for people. So never feel like you can't do something you can. And I think for those who are thinking about their first year in college and looking at the fall and thinking about this in terms of crisis and gloom and doom, just know that it's not going to be that way. It's actually a very exciting time of your life, even though the circumstances are not ideal and maybe you didn't never imagine attending class online. Most people in this listening audience know that they can trace at least one lifelong friendship to their time in school and especially their time in college. So whether we're on campus face-to-face or we're online, you're about to have some of the most incredible years of your life. You're about to learn things that you've never imagined about yourself and about the world. You're about to create connections with your classmates and your professors that will likely propel you not just into your first job, but probably into a lifetime of learning. So get ready for a really, really exciting fall and we'll learn and grow together. I think that definitely something everybody has to consider and that's a really positive way to look at it from what we've definitely discussed within this podcast is this time has shown us the importance of adapting and being accommodating to one another because maybe what one thing I've heard people say is that before coronavirus we were just moving too quickly everything everybody was going from one place to another place without ever stopping so now really having this opportunity where the whole entire world for a second did stop, it gave everybody the opportunity to think and really reflect on what they've been doing. So I think for our listeners, just get a bit of background on yourself, Terrell, going from a background in music studies to being a professor, what did that transition look like and how did you end up being a professor and even an author as well? Yeah, great question. I should probably just stop saying great question because all your questions are so good. But like you said, to those who are listening, who are wondering about my background, which I typically present as, you know, like my story. I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, as I alluded to earlier, and went to high school, finished high school. That momentum that I talked about or the sort of gravitas of my social network carried me to college because growing up, I don't remember having long conversations with people about college. It was sort of presumed that I would go not because I would say I always looked like college material, but because most people in my social circle were college bound, had come from college educated families. And I went to a really remarkable high school. And I say that as an education scholar who studies social inequities. And when I look back at my high school, I remember in 12th grade, almost all of my teachers had a doctorate. 
And I thought that was common. And it wasn't until I was in graduate school learning at the University of Virginia's Curry School of Education as a master's student that I realized, wow, that's actually not the norm in most places. But it was a remarkable high school that all of the teachers were licensed to teach, teaching within their field. So that reflected the kind of education that I was blessed to receive that got me ready to go to the University of Virginia. When I started at UVA, I was biology major because I wanted to be a medical doctor until I shadowed a cardiologist who was my uncle, the late Dr. Earl Strayhorn, who I was in surgery with him and there was like a lot of blood and I passed out. <laughs> and I realized <laughs> that I'm probably not going to be a very successful surgeon. So I switched and became pre-law and was pre-law until, for the most part, I realized that at UVA, to be pre-law you get a broad education. You take lots of courses that would develop your logical reasoning. Those might be in English, but it was, I wanted a, a major that tracked right on to my career and law was not really that. So I eventually ended up talking to an academic advisor and someone in student affairs who told me I need to stop changing my major or I was going to be there forever. And they said, you know, like, what do you like to do? And Natalie and Vicky, it had been so long since anyone had ever asked me, what do I actually like to do? I was in this habit, which a lot of students are, and that is tell me what I must do to get out of ninth grade and I'll do it. And tell me what I got to do to get out of 10th grade and I'll do it. And tell me what AP courses I must take in order to be college bound and I'll do it. And then you get to college and it's like overnight the rules change and people want to know, what are you interested in doing? Where do you see yourself going one day? And no one had ever talked to me about that. So I remember being completely stumped by that question. And I consulted my class ring, which was on my finger. And on one side, I had a treble clef because I've been musical for most of my life. I play the piano and sing. And on the other side, I had praying hands because faith has always been important to me as an individual. And I inherited that faith from my parents and my grandparents. So without thinking about it, I told the academic advisor, music and religion. And those ended up being the majors that carried me my four years at UVA because in terms of music, I was always interested in it. I was always interested enough to study hard and to show up for class and to advance in the levels of theory. And I think that's what's necessary for a person to do well in college. We often think, oh my gosh, I got to know exactly what I want to do. And if I want to be a teacher, I've got a major in education. And if I want to be an accountant, I have a major in accounting. If I want to be a lawyer, I've got a major in pre-law. And that works for some people, but not for the masses of people. So to the students who are listening, both those who are currently in college, those who are going to college, and those who are about to finish college, if you feel confused and like you don't know, then join the club. Most of us don't know. That is absolutely okay. We have time to figure it out. And rarely can you figure it out on your own. You need some thought partners who will help you with that. And so I had the blessing of an academic advisor. And actually, she was the dean of residence life, Dr. Angela Davis, who sat down with me and helped me think, what if you majored in music and religious studies? Because those are your interests. And then sort of specialized at the graduate level. You know, I was surprised because I'd never heard about graduate school. And I thought, well, what's graduate school? And before you know it, that's exactly what I did. I finished up my undergrad, specialized at the master's level in education policy. 
And that's where I really started to see sort of early signs of the professor, scholar in making. I love policy analysis. I loved blending lessons from history to addressing contemporary problems. So in one of my classes, I just remember I was in my master's program around the time that higher ed was really starting to struggle with affirmative action in college admissions. And so for one of my papers in a class, I was arguing for the adoption of race conscious admissions policies. But to do that, I had to read about race neutrality. I had to read about the role of race in higher education. So bringing all of these literatures together to argue a particular point was just rewarding to me on levels that it's hard to find words for sometimes. But and I didn't know then because I was just like, a I don't mean it pejoratively, but I was sort of an advanced undergrad. I had just finished my undergrad. I was one year out. I had not worked. I went straight into my master's program. And if I had had more experience, I think I would have had the vocabulary for explaining what I was feeling at that time. But I just remember thinking, gosh, I really love grad school. I really love working on these things. And so I then decided for my doctorate, I would stay in education, but not K-12, to really focus on higher ed. And I had worked by that point at the Council of Graduate Schools as a research associate, working with the team and graduate deans on how do you build the graduate education enterprise? What do we know about this recruitment and retention of graduate students? I brought questions around race and gender. Like, what do we know about the success of Black women compared to white women or Latina women? And that became sort of the beginning of my research agenda. So by the time I finished my doctorate, I was convinced. I remember, you know, I thought I was going to finish my doctorate, go back to the council graduate schools and work there again. But my advisor, who has become my life mentor and in a way, like a life coach for me, he's retired now, but he told me one day, he said, you know what I think you ought to do when you finish your doctorate? I said, what's that? He said, you should be a professor. I said, really? How would you do, how would I do that? And he said, well, you just apply for a job. And these questions, as you know, comical as they may seem, I have to tell everyone in the listening audience, they were so real for me. Like I, I had no idea at this point, 15 years ago, what you would like. I didn't know how to become a professor. I had learned from, from professors all my life, but I had no idea how to get into that. In fact, I don't even think I had stopped to think about that as a profession. But my advisor became my door. He exposed me to a world I knew nothing about. And I'm so grateful to him because it's a world that I love. I mean, it is me. It's my passion. It's my vocation. It's my purpose. It's my calling. I get energized by it. And I I get choked up sometimes when I think about the fact that if it had not been for him, having the confidence in me that I could be a professor I would have missed what I think I was born to do. And I think because we're here, I'll say even more vividly, you know, for those of you who see an image of me and you're thinking, oh, he's an African-American male, the guy that he's talking about must be Black. My mentor is white from Texas. His name is Dr. Don Creamer. He has sandy blonde hair. At that time, I think if I'm not mistaken, so if Don listens to this, please don't be offended, but I think... There could have been something like 40 years of age separating us, and none of that mattered. When Don looked at me, Don saw possibility. Don saw potential. None of our differences kept him 
from telling me how he felt about me and telling me what he saw in me, things he saw in me that I could not see in myself. And that propelled me. I mean, it's really hard when someone you trust and you get to know tells you that you can do something and then they expose you to it. So, you know, people listening might say, well, how did he do that? Let me tell you, I was sitting in his office one day and I said, Don, I've been giving some thought to what you said about being professor. And I think I might try to do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't even know what it means, but I'm, I'm sort of intrigued. And he said, come here. And he pulled me up and I can't remember, but my memory, he pulled out his calendar and he walked me through like two weeks of his life. And now I can't say, I can't go into detail about this because this one typically does choke me up and move me to tears because it's so, it's just one of those sort of full circle moments for me. But I remember sitting there looking at his calendar. And first of all, I thought how cool it is that my professor and advisor, he was the chair of my dissertation, trust me enough to pull back the curtain, so to speak, and show me his life. And he would say like, you know, this day I got a meeting with this group and he'd explain the group. I didn't know these groups like university council. And then this day I'm meeting with the provost to talk about this. I remember all of that, but there were also days where Don had nothing on his calendar. And I remember asking him like, what do you do on those days? And he said, oh, I'll stay home and I'll write and I'll work on my research. And I said, what do you mean work on your research? And he told me like, he'd stay at home and analyze and write. And I said, and do you get paid for that? And he's like, yeah, that's what the university pays me for, you know, to do my research and my writing. And I just thought this is so fascinating. But the part that I got to tell you, because it's true, was I remember somewhere in that two week or three week span, he had something called a keynote. And I remember asking him, what is a keynote? And he said, oh, I'm going to this conference and I'm going to speak there. And I said, really, where is it? And I don't remember it was, but I said, how will you get there? He said, oh, they've paid for my flight. I said, really? He said, yeah, and they've paid for my hotel and they're going to give me a check or a little honorarium for giving this talk. And I was blown away. And I remember taking notes. I still have the notebook to this day. And what that means is 15 years ago, I did not know what a keynote was. But 15 years later, I'm a keynote speaker. And if I know anything, I know what a keynote is. I hope I know how to give a keynote. And so I offer that to everyone who's listening, who, you know, maybe feels like you don't know enough or because you were born into a certain circumstance or a zip code, you will never achieve the dreams that other people have or the level of success that other people have. And it's just simply not true. Education can get you there. And for me, I'm a living witness that I'm blessed that although I was not born in this kind of environment, I wasn't born to professors. My parents don't have doctoral degrees, but because of their sacrifices and the sacrifices of my grandparents and many others along the way, including my advisor, education has opened up a world of opportunity for me and for my family and for my kids and those attached to me that I could never have imagined, which is why I so vigorously pursue paying it forward in the way that I do. I think it's just a really powerful reminder to all of us that we can change the world. And maybe it happens one person at a time. I think if I ever you know, get to do from my student what Don did for me, then that's a satisfied life because Don exposed me to a world I couldn't imagine. And now I live it. To get here, there were opportunities that I needed that I could not afford. And it was my advisor who cared about me as a mentor. Not the university didn't pay him to do this. He took a personal interest in my success 
And I can tell you, there were occasions where Don covered the bill for me to go to a conference because I didn't have the money. My family didn't have the money to get me there, but he would do it. And so I offer that again as an example for those who are listening, who are mentors, and you're trying to figure out what can I do to help this student who, I don't know where they're from in the world or what they're facing. And I think we as mentors are called to have high expectations of our protégés, to communicate those expectations to them, to understand that quite often that means that we're seeing things in them that they've never seen themselves. And for those who are fortunate to live in the ways in which I've lived, and that is, I've always, you know, I'm five, six, I've never been tall enough, I've never been heavy enough, I've never been athletic enough. Academics has been my strongest skill. This concludes the second part of our three-part series with Terrell Strayhorn. Join us next week for the third and final installment. <laughs>